and welcome to Historical Hysteria. My name is Nicholas Ward and today we are delving deep into the dark and disturbing world of drugs. We left last week in the middle of the 19th century with the invention of the first vaccines and the death of the poor old father of handwashing, Ignaz Semmelweis. This episode we will start where we left off with new and exciting weapons in the modern doctor's armory that for the first time in history gave people the chance to actually understand and fight back against the causes of disease and ill health. Groundbreaking improvements in existing technology like the microscope in 1850 helped lead to the discovery of bacteria, and for the first time scientists found that instead of blindly throwing bodies at the problem they could target study treatments without needless human misery. But thought a few brave souls, what if we do that and throw human bodies at the problem? So without further ado, let me introduce you to my good friend, Drugs. Now Drugs is a misnomer and I should be saying pharmaceuticals or pharmacology, but that would be less fun to say. Drugs are any substance that cause physiological or psychological changes when consumed and have existed in human societies since prehistoric times. Now, the history of medical drugs is far longer than many realise, so before we start on the birth of modern pharmacology, we will briefly jump into our time machine and travel back to the cobblestone streets of ancient Rome. Close your eyes and smell the meat roasting on spits and hear the Christians screaming in the Colosseum. Ah, civilization. You find yourself strolling down the street and feel a slight pang above your right eye. The Christians are being awfully loud today. You spot a sign of a stick with two snakes curled around it. So you walk in to talk to your local physician. He hands you a cup of hot water and as if by magic, your headache fades. You ask him his secret and he taps his nose and winks. What you have just drunk is aspirin. It may have been mixed with gladiator blood or cow urine, but otherwise remarkably similar to the aspirin you can get at any corner store or pharmacy today. Aspirin in various forms can be traced back to ancient Sumeria and into the mists of prehistory. Acetosilic acid is the primary ingredient of aspirin and is found naturally in the bark of the willow tree. And at some point in the distant past, various people around the world found chewing on this bark alleviated headaches, cooled fevers and reduced inflammation. On a side note, aspirin is actually a brand name from the company Bayer, which has long since lapsed and become the generic term. And on a side myth, the two snakes twined around the staff is the modern symbol for medicine. However, that is actually the historical symbol of Hermes, not the historical symbol of medicine. The historical symbol of medicine was a single snake twirled around a stick. But anyway, more refined methods of consumption would begin around the 5th century BC, first recorded by Hippocrates before being imported to Rome. Further experiments would refine the extraction of the acetosilic acid. It may come as a surprise to modern audiences that Romans had a wide-ranging pharmaceutical industry ranging from actual medicine like aspirin to, let's say, less real medicine like gladiator blood. The term for these establishments today is apothecary, and they would wax and wane in popularity from ancient Babylon and the warring states of China right through to the Industrial Revolution, peddling a mixture of powders, herbs, placebos, and urine well into the era of modern medicine. Apothecaries ranged from highly organised urban affairs to forest-dwelling wise women and druids. While Romans would adore their apothecaries and view them as the height of modernity, by the late Renaissance a turf war began to brew between physicians and apothecaries. To the physician's credit, apothecaries were often little better than witch doctors peddling placebos, but to the apothecaries' credit, a lot of their medicine, unlike much of the doctoring at the time, actually worked, and has, in modern times, been converted into, well, medicine. Now, the foundation of the modern drug industry begins in the 18th century with a renewed interest in what else but aspirin. 
1763, Edward Stone, an English chaplain, would notice the effects of willow bark on the symptoms of various illnesses, such as malaria, and create an extract to relieve their symptoms, falling just short of being the inventor of aspirin by about five to 10,000 years. However, this rediscovery of aspirin would trigger a massive surge in popularity of the drug, and would kick off a period of intense research of other old medicines to measure and improve their effectiveness. First intentional drug discovery was that of morphine, discovered by Frederick Saturner in 1805. It went on commercial sale in 1817. It was marked both as a painkiller and as a cure for opium addiction. Saturner, incidentally, almost immediately overdosed on morphine, almost died, then became massively addicted to it, starting a long and storied tradition of trying to make opioids safe and failing. Morphine will come onto the market just in time to make the life of surgeons and doctors easier, and the booming drug market will produce in short order a raft of drugs, many of which we still use today. Which brings me to 1807 and Samuel Hahnemann, a noted physician and apothecary who begins a lifelong study on how to identify and refine medicines from botanicals, incidentally birthing the modern pharmaceutical industry. His work will be enormously influential, and he will briefly be one of the world's foremost experts on the production of new medications. Hahnemann would work as a lecturer at Leipzig University, and in 1833 he opened his first hospital to test his ideas. However, it was in the United States that they truly gained traction. Hans Birch Graham would bring his ideas to America in 1825, and in 1835 the Allentown Academy is established as one of the only institutions in the world solely dedicated to the discovering of new medicines. Just a few years later in 1844, with popularity surging, doctors from across the United States gather in New York and establish the first medical society in American history, the American Institute of Homeopathy. Wait, wait, let me explain. Before you, before you throw your phone across the room, let me introduce you to my good friend drugs again. What are drugs? More specifically, how does one identify a drug? create drugs, know what drugs are effective for. Today we have multi-billion dollar research companies that help determine these things. We have decades of research, animal trials, human trials, double-blind trials, computer models, and a solid if limited understanding of the chemicals that make us up and what reacts with them. By contrast, at the dawn of modernity, doctors had virtually nothing to discover or test new drugs with. Morphine was derived from an existing medicine, but with that discovery, opened up the incredible opportunity to truly revolutionise medicine. Enter homeopathy. Hahnemann first theorised homeopathy in 1807 with a simple phrase, like cures like. Now, as a doctor, he had been treating malaria for much of his career. Malaria was a major problem at the time, and was treated one of three ways, with aspirin, wormwood, or peru wood. Hahnemann noticed one day that if a healthy person consumed wormwood, they would get pallid, feverish, nauseous, headaches, and extremely tired, all symptoms of malaria. Therefore, he thought, if a medicine causes the same conditions in a healthy person as those in a sick person, that will cure them. Now, as ridiculous as that may sound today, it was as good an explanation as anyone could come up with at the time. Remember, this was a time when miasma, the theory of bad smells causing diseases, is still the dominant thought, and before the invention of hand washing. Hahnemann had no way of knowing this, but the reason wormwood cured malaria was high natural levels of quinine. We may mock today, but at the time, no one knew why anything they were doing worked. People were still bloodletting at this point, and if you had asked a doctor why opium worked, they'd have shrugged and said, I don't know, ghosts. Hahnemann's work, despite some scepticism, 
will be greeted with an initial boom in interest, which is understandable. If you lived in a world where you knew medicine existed, but had no way of discovering it, wouldn't you latch onto someone claiming they knew how to? Now, unsurprisingly, following the Wormwood theory, Hanneman would have three decades of tremendous success, poisoning the living hell out of people. See, unfortunately, homeopathy isn't real. Sorry, homeopaths. You may have heard the term homeopathy is water before. Personally, I have found many people don't actually know what this means, so let me explain it briefly. Homeopathy is, well, water. It wasn't, however, a con. Hanneman, unlike homeopaths today, was a doctor, and while 19th century doctors were little removed from the Romans and their gladiator blood, he did apply rigorous testing to his theory, by poisoning a bunch of people. See, to test like cures like, he needed to find ingredients that caused symptoms in healthy people, like those in sick people. So he set about rigorously poisoning healthy people, then poisoning the corresponding sick people. The problem was, and this will surprise you, when you poison sick people, they just get sicker. So over time, Hanneman diluted the substances, then diluted them again, and again, and again, in his first medical textbook on the issue, the Organon of Healing. He noted that undiluted extracts must never be given to the patient, and that the more diluted the extract, the higher the potency. Hanneman would use one part to 100 dilutions for most of his life. However, in his last works, introduced one part to 50,000 parts. In other words, water. So, when people call homeopathy water, they mean it literally. And yet homeopathy will be a mainstay of modern medicine from 1807 right through until the early 1900s, and was essentially the best and almost only explanation for the effectiveness of medicine for three quarters of the century. Criticisms of homeopathy start around the same time it reached its height of popularity in the 1840s. Critics would point out that after 30 years of practice, there was still no concrete data to back up its effectiveness. Though, this at the time was actually disputable, because after two major cholera outbreaks in 1830 and 1840, homeopathic hospitals would suffer dramatically lower mortality rates than conventional hospitals. Today, the reason for this is depressingly obvious. Homeopathy's effectiveness was its ineffectiveness. Remember, at the time, doctors didn't wash their hands. Sanitation was non-existent, and on top of this, bloodletting, the act of slicing people open to bleed the bad blood out from them, was still a major medical practice. Because what do you want when you have a fecal-based disease that causes uncontrollable diarrhea around doctors and nurses who don't wash their hands is a gaping wound on your arm in a crowded hospital? Homeopathic hospitals, meanwhile, had done away with bloodletting and treated people with water that was generally distilled or boiled, both of which will kill cholera. So, clean water and not constantly getting sliced open. Gee, I wonder why that worked. Because of this, many physicians would cling to homeopathy, come hell or high water, for the rest of their careers. But by the 1880s, with the mainstreaming of scientific rationalism, the last holdouts of homeopathy in mainstream medicine began to slowly fall away, and over the next few decades, homeopathy would start to gain its modern reputation as hogwash. But if you thought we were finally entering the non-stupid phase of medical history, let me briefly introduce you to Max Joseph von Pettenkoffer, who had been kicking around in Germany promoting public hygiene initiatives. 
Pettenkofer was a huge proponent of public sanitation to tackle disease, and in 1892 a massive cholera outbreak hits Hamburg. Another German doctor, Robert Koch, would suggest treating the water to kill the cholera, something that at this point had been proven effective for 40 years. Dr. Pettenkofer refused, insisting personal hygiene was the treatment. Why? Because he still believed in miasma in the 1890s. Koch, furious with him, will send him a soup contaminated with the cholera bacteria, and Pietenkofer drinks it. While he doesn't die, he is sick for weeks, though he insists it wasn't cholera. The epidemic is finally brought under control after Koch took over, introducing sterilizing water supplies and quarantines. 8,000 people die before the last proponents of miasma finally surrender to modernity in 1892. We are only 11 years away at this point from the Wright brothers and the invention of powered flight and we are still dealing with miasma. Should it really be a surprise then that homeopathy gained and maintained popularity considering what butchers, and I mean this as politely as possible, morons, other mainstream doctors were at the time. Homeopaths may have been giving you water, but at least they weren't actively killing you. So, as we near the end of the 18th century, we see the final end of miasma with 8,000 easily preventable deaths, we see doctors still bloodletting patients, and we see homeopaths quietly taking a backseat to real medicine. Though in the US alone in 1900, homeopaths will have 15,000 physicians and 22 colleges, and right up until the 1930s, graduating from a homeopathic medical college will still qualify you to practice medicine in dozens of US states. So, not exactly gone. And you, listener, may be asking, wait, where the hell are the drugs? You skipped over all the drugs! But, you may have guessed, I haven't skipped over anything, because as we approach the dawn of the new century, it is also the dawn of drugs. In fact, all drugs discovered in the 19th century can be listed on the back of a postage stamp. They are in order of discovery. Morphine, quinine, xantanine, chloral hydrate, acetosilic acid, phenylhydrazine, paracetamol, mannitol, phenazone, ephedrine, benzocaine, quinazoline, amphetamine, and of course the best of them all, methamphetamines. Of these, half are discovered after 1875, and the ability to synthesize said drugs only takes off in the 1880s. So then, what if not pharmaceuticals was the medicine of the 19th century, that of industrialization and the birth of modernity? Well, it was quackery. The medicine of the 19th century, by doctor and shyster alike, was mostly bogus or poison or both. From mercury to snake oil, Modern medicine was little different to ancient Roman physicians like Cato the Elder stubbornly holding cabbage leaves to their head while downing gladiator blood. And with only a handful of exceptions, the actual medical drugs of the 19th century are botanicals. Little changed from when cavemen chewed on willow bark. And if you are still stubbornly puzzling why I spent a whole episode telling you the history of homeopathy, it's because homeopathy is as much part of the birth of modern medicine as any other discovery, and it gave medicine the groundbreaking discovery that sometimes it's better to do nothing. It is a perfect demonstration that even the smartest people in the room can be misled and mistaken, or pig-headed and arrogant to the point of idiocy. Modernity isn't everything it's cracked up to be. Today, we are often presented a highly idealized version of the past, and medical history textbooks will often skip straight from Semmelweis to Pasteur, 
over the miasma and the homeopathy that was so dominant at the time. And too many people have an idea of the dawn of industrialization as this birth of a golden city on a hill. It has been used to entrench and justify ideas of European supremacy and to promote ridiculous myths of rationalism which don't hold up to the least bit of scrutiny. Because as much as we owe those past generations for dragging themselves up and building the foundations of modern medicine, we shouldn't lose sight of the undeniable fact that they were also absolute lunatics who had so little understanding of the world, it is breathtaking. They didn't all accidentally poison themselves. I mean poison themselves more than they did. The 1890s can still feel a long way off from today, but remember that Sherlock Holmes appears for the first time in 1891, Dracula in 1897, and the first cars slowly start speeding around the streets of Europe in 1895. All of these facets of modern life appear at the same time miasma and homeopathy and bloodletting are still parts of mainstream medicine, so try to remember we are not as far removed from our ridiculous past as we like to think. On a side myth before I end this episode, I want to quickly address naturopathy. Naturopathy is essentially the modern term for medical botanicals, and is often dismissed on the same lines as homeopathy as bogus. They, however, are not the same. Naturopathic medicines have actual medical effects, if slight. Though their reputation is not helped by the sheer number of bogus herbal companies trying to sell everything under the sun as miracle cures. Next week, we will be diving headlong into the 20th century with what some argue is the true birth of modern medicine, when the inextricable force of scientific rationalism merged fully with medicine and crashed face first into the immovable wall of human stupidity to come up with some truly spectacularly weird ideas. That is all we have time for, thank you for joining me, and before I go, I will leave you with this. In 1907, the United Kingdom Parliament passed the Deceased Wife's Sisters Marriage Act. It was the second Deceased Wife's Sisters Marriage Bill to reach Parliament, the first in 1842 being voted down. The law allowed a widower to marry his wife's sister, as up to that point your wife's sister was considered your blood relative. Thank you for listening, I hope you'll join me next time, and goodbye.